Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. The late Anton Chekhov, a Russian writer, is said to be one of the great short story fiction writers in all of literary history. He has a short story he wrote by the name of The Lament. The Lament is about Iona, a horse and buggy driver for hire, kind of a cab driver, if you will. It's a bitterly cold night. The snow that is falling is turning Iona and his horse into white ghosts as it settles down and covers them. But he needs the fares to be able to eat. The first fare he picks up on that night is a businessman in a hurry to get somewhere. As the horse plods down the road, Iona begins to try to share with the man who has boarded his cab. He has news to tell, you see. His son has just died, and Iona is heartbroken. He opens up and begins to share the story with the businessman, who is rudely impatient and totally uninterested. He finally exits the cab, leaving Iona heartbroken and even more cold. And the snow continues to fall. It's several hours later before he picks up his next fare. It's actually three young men. Three young men right around the age of his son who died. Surely they will be interested in hearing my, my tale, my sad story of lament. But they are extremely rude, very boisterous, but extremely rude. They actually laugh and begin to mock Iona. One of them even slaps him on the neck, in essence telling him, hurry up, we want to get to the place where we're going. They exit the cab. And Iona is even more heartbroken. No one will listen to his sad saga. And the snow continues to fall. As that bitterly cold night unfolds, it doesn't seem to matter to whom he turns, to another cab driver, to a house porter, wherever he turns, there is no interest, no interest in hearing his pain, his sorrow. When the night finally and mercifully ends, Iona takes his cab and his horse back to the stable, takes his beloved horse inside and begins to wipe her down prepare her for sleep. And it is only there that he finally opens up, unburdens his soul, shares his lament with his patient, plodding horse. It's a sad tale. It leaves the reader asking the question, does nobody care? Will nobody listen? Will nobody come alongside old Iona to share his sorrow? 
And yet it's a tale that underlines the reality of the often cold, often bitter, often cruel world in which we live. It seems on every hand we find reasons for loneliness, reasons for grief, reasons for sorrow. It seems everywhere we turn, people are heartbroken, carrying heavy loads. And yet they experience nothing but the cold, bitter night. Doesn't matter if it's the geeky teenager in the high school lunchroom or if it's the office clown who has everybody in stitches and then goes home to cry alone. The questions are there. From the bereaved husband, from the abandoned wife, from the broken-hearted lover, from the life-sentenced prisoner. We're alone, we're hurting. Is there nothing that can change our world? The questions continue to echo. The question is, is there an idea that could change the world? We're in a series entitled, Seven Ideas That Could Save the Church and One More That Could Change the World. We've been at it for seven weeks. This is our eighth and final week. We've looked one at a time at the seven ideas for the church. Now all that is left is to ask the question about that one other idea that might change the world. Is it possible? Is there such an idea? I want to look and see. And in order to look and see if there is such an idea, I want to take us to Matthew's Gospel in the New Testament. Take us to that section of Matthew's Gospel that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Because here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually talks about relationships, human relationships, relationships between people, relationships with people who may sometimes be kind to us and may other times be cruel to us. Can we find in that sermon an idea with the potential to change the world? Well, we're going to look. And we're going to begin in the first chapter of the sermon, Matthew 5, reading just a few words, verse 38, because here in verse 38, Jesus starts talking about an idea that should unfold in relationships between people, or at least should have unfolded at a certain time. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says this. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's the first idea. <laughs> it's formally, technically known as lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation. And believe it or not, that was an idea that was supposed to change its world. That's right, if you go back into the Old Testament text, for, it's stated more than one time. One example is Exodus 21. If you go back into that text, when the idea is introduced, 
it is introduced in the context of a world where the consequence and sometimes the punishment for an offense far outweighed the offense committed in excess of what had been done. It wasn't just. It wasn't fair. And so along comes this idea through Moses, divinely inspired, saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. It was originally intended to bring about justice, fairness in human relationships. Do not allow the consequence to outweigh the offense. Be just, be fair in your relationships with others. And honestly, in the situations and contexts where that was carried out, it had the power to change the world in that day and time. But it had a problem. Human nature being what it is, it didn't endure as a matter of justice and fairness and equality. It became about payback. Getting back at the other person. And that eye for eye rule of dominating human relationships lives on. One example of it is in sports. If you look, for example, to the world of hockey, that beautiful and gentle gliding sport from our neighbors up north, <laughs> until you watch it, it has an example of this eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth rule dictating. I'm not a hockey aficionado, but I just spoke with one this week who told me there's a person on each team, often known as the enforcer, the bruiser, who if someone on your team, especially a good player, is somehow hurt, that person now goes out against the other team to level the playing field, to even the score, to give eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It's the same reality that you at times see in baseball. I understand that in baseball, pitchers who know that a pitcher on the opposing team has hit one of their own will aim in their pitch toward one of their players just to settle the score, a little bit of payback. So it was intended to bring about justice, but it too quickly becomes about payback. And yet it's an idea that had the potential to change its world But along came Gandhi centuries later and pointed out the obvious. Because he said, if we live by eye for eye, pretty soon the whole, whole world will be blind. So maybe that's not our idea. In fact, it wasn't even the idea Jesus had. Because in that same passage, he presents us with a second idea. This one we know as turn the other cheek. If the first was eye for eye, this is turn the other cheek. So back we go to Matthew chapter 5, rereading that verse and then finishing that short paragraph. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, 
and two for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Turn the other cheek. In this case, the idea is one that doesn't seek justice but seeks grace. It actually doesn't strike back, evening the score, but seeks to pull back and allow grace to rest on the relationship. Now, that's an idea. Certainly, that could be life-changing. That, if practiced enough, could even be world-changing. Because one of the deepest rights we human beings tend to cling to is the right to get even. You see it in little children. What parent hasn't heard, but he hit me first. And then things devolve from there. It's that, 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 that right we have. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You hit me, I'll hit you. You talk bad about me, I'll talk bad about you. And to that, Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Slow that down. Turn the other cheek. Relinquish your right to get even. Now there's an idea. Suppose you're driving on the freeway. You see your exit ramp coming up. You put on your blinker. You're going to move over. You see in your mirror another car is coming. It's a ways back. You have plenty of space to move over. But the car speeds up. You need to get off. It's far enough back that, that you move over. The car now passes you on the right, scaring you where you swerve back, beats you to the ramp, and now you exit. If you're following the first rule for human behavior, lex talionis, eye for eye, you know what you do next. You speed up, and at the first possible chance, you cut them off, and then you slow down. Like, really? You're going to do that to me? Well, here's what I'm going to do to you. But if you're following this turn-the-other-cheek reality, you ease off the gas pedal. You refuse to speed up. You choose to hang back and let it go. You may be stirred up inside. You may be roiling inside, maybe even with anger. But you make the intentional decision to back off. And because you do, there are no further fireworks. That's the turn-the-other-cheek principle. There's no question that this lands us in a better space than the first eye-for-eye eye principle. But it does leave us at times with some things we have to deal with internally. Now, you recognize as soon as we talk about that turn-the-other-cheek principle, we talk about Jesus Christ himself. In no place was it more evident than on the weekend of his crucifixion. 
that night before the crucifixion, as the soldiers buffeted and battered him, as the soldiers slapped him, hitting him on the head, spitting on him, covering his face, punching him, and then saying, prophesy, who hit you that time? What was the old gospel song lyric? He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have, but he turned the other cheek. Is that our idea? An idea that could change the world? Turn the other cheek? You have to have a fairly robust internal healthy structure to be able to do it to be able to practice that kind of restraint. But when you do live it out, it changes the situation. Is that our idea? An idea that could change the world? Well, I might be tempted to stop there and say that's the idea with the power to change the world, but Jesus didn't stop there. Because in this same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, just a bit later in the sermon, he went to another principle that informs human relationships. This principle is such a powerful principle that we've actually given it a name. We call it by a name. This idea is that earth-changing. We're not sure exactly where the name came from, but it appears to have come out of Great Britain, the United Kingdom, back in the 17th century, when Anglican theologians and Anglican clerics began to call it by this name. And ever since, that name has endured. It's not a name that appears in the Bible, but everyone knows it when you hear it. People know the principle when they hear the name. Here's the name, the golden rule. The golden rule. As soon as we hear that, we think Matthew 7, 12. It's very short, pithy, pungent, powerful. Listen to its words, Jesus speaking, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. When he says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the scripture of his day. A summary of all of it, he says, is contained in this one idea, do to others what you would wish for them to do to you. The golden rule. Now, this is different than the last principle, that turn-the-other-cheek principle, because in the turn-the-other-cheek principle, all one needs in order to live it out is a healthy and mature sense of restraint. I won't strike back. But that is not sufficient for living out the golden rule. It is simple and succinct, crisp, concise, and clear, but it is deeply demanding. 
Now, Jesus was not the first one to state a principle similar to this. But what he did was quite different from what others had done. I want to read you uh, several paragraphs, actually, from the pen of the late James Montgomery Boyce. As I read it, I thought this really sets the context and the realities of this golden rule principle. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Listen to Boyce's words. What is important and unique about this verse, the best known of all Christ's sayings, is that it is expressed in a positive form. It is not difficult to find parallels to Christ's rule in its negative form. The great Rabbi Hillel said, What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. That is the whole law, the rest is commentary. In the apocryphal book of Tobit, composed several centuries before the time of Jesus, the hero tells his young son, What thou hatest, do to no man. William Barclay, who lists these examples among many others, cites close parallels from Confucius, Epictetus, the Stoics, and the hymns of the faith of Buddhism. But these are negative. They say, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. By contrast, Jesus turned the saying completely around, saying positively, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. It has always been possible for people to keep the negative version of this rule, for it is essentially a sound and necessary legal principle. If we are to get along in a civilized society, we must discipline ourselves so we do not injure other people. We must obey the law, stop at stop signs, pay our bills, avoid avoid overt acts of prejudice, and many such things. It is a bit like an honest man paying taxes. We do it because we must, while hoping we will have enough left over for ourselves after we have paid them. How different when we look at our obligations positively. Now it is no longer a matter of legal principle, doing what needs to be done to get along or to stay out of trouble. What is needed now is a transformed life which is why we cannot keep the golden rule or any other standard of this sermon by ourselves. If we are operating by the law, our minds are on ourselves to fix our attention on the needs, cares, love, joys, hopes, and dreams of other people. We must be transformed people. In other words, we must turn from the demands of the law entirely to receive a new spiritual life from God. Christian faith begins with a confession of our failure, followed by faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, but it continues as we learn to put the needs and wants of other people first. In other words, it is only when we have learned to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we can begin to love our neighbors as ourselves. Understand, To turn the other cheek, all I need is restraint. But to do to others as I would wish them to do to me requires action. Little Jack may find that he can live out the turn the other cheek reality with his sister by simply not slapping her back, and he'll avoid getting in trouble. But what does he do when his mother says, Jack... Your sister's crying. Go over there. Put your arm around her. Hug her. Kiss her on the cheek. And tell her you love her. 
She lost Jack at kiss her on the cheek. What? I don't want to do that. This is a much more deeply demanding requirement. And it necessitates a certain virtue within the soul if we are going to live it out. And that's a virtue called empathy. An emotional experience called empathy. It is when we feel empathy for another person that we are then able to step to their side and act on their behalf, even if they've done us wrong. What is empathy? Well, maybe let me contrast sympathy and empathy. Some have said that sympathy is the experience of saying, I feel for you. Seeing a situation where somebody's troubled or, or in pain or in sorrow, I feel for you. But they then said, empathy, however, is saying, I feel with you. With you. And in fact, I feel so deeply with you that I moved to act on your behalf. That's exactly what Jesus did. John's gospel, as it opens, calls Jesus the Word. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then as you read those opening lines of John's gospel, you come to that statement in verse 14, where it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The literal translation of that is he tabernacled among us. He set up his tent in our campground, or as the message puts it, he moved into our neighborhood. He felt such deep empathy with our human, broken, fractured plight that he entered into our skin, into our experience, came alongside and treated us in a way filled with proactive grace. Empathy. No wonder the writer to the Hebrews will call him a high priest that is in all points able to relate to us. Empathy. I feel with you. So much do I feel with you that I'm willing to come alongside and do for you what you don't deserve because it's the very thing I would desire if I were in your situation. That's the empathy that drives the action of what we call the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's not the justice of eye for eye. It's not the restraint of turn the other cheek. It's the proactive empathy of the golden rule. Do for others. Is that idea sufficient to change the world? What happens when people live out empathy? Maybe a few snapshots would help. Here's a snapshot. 
Snapshot of the lead hostage negotiator of the NYPD, the New York Police Department, Jack Cambria. They called him Gentleman Jack. 33 years he worked in that role. I want to read you some words that describe him. What's the secret to success as a hostage negotiator? Jack Cambria says, The very good negotiators, I think, are the ones with life stories, particularly life stories of pain that have produced compassion for others. Good negotiators must experience the emotion of love at one point in their life. To know what it means to have been hurt in love at one point in their life, to know success, and perhaps most important, to know what it means to fail. He learned this lesson, Jack Cambria, during his first day as a police officer. Cambria admitted that he had his own baggage about the homeless. They were violent, he says. They were dirty. They were mentally ill. And then one day he had to confront a homeless fare beater, somebody trying to beat the fare for the subway. He had to confront him and search his satchel. This homeless man was carrying a satchel. Inside, there wasn't a weapon, but there was a manuscript of a play entitled Crabs in a Basket, a metaphor of the man and the play he was writing to describe his struggle to crawl out of the hole he was in. In that two-minute space of time, says Cambria. He had transposed himself from a homeless guy, my baggage, to a playwright. That compassion has led colleagues to refer to him as Gentleman Jack, whose guiding principle is to just get suspects talking and to listen to their story. Empathy. I feel with you. So I'll act for you. Calls to mind the quote by Ben Hayden, If your own heart hasn't been broken, you tend to be insensitive except to those people you like. A snapshot of this idea. Consider another snapshot. This of two former United States presidents. Both had occupied that seat as the most powerful person in the world. The 2004 tsunami in Southeast Asia had wreaked havoc on that part of the world. And these two gentlemen had been tapped to go to that part of the world to see what we could do in terms of rescue and aid efforts. Their names, George H.W. Bush and William Jefferson Clinton. Both sides of the political aisle had been foes and opponents many times. They were on a government plane. This particular government plane had one bedroom where one of them could sleep, and there was one other room with some chairs, tables, lamps. When it came time to sleep, Bill Clinton spoke to the fairly older former President Bush and said, you take the bedroom, please. Bush would later describe, and these are his words, what happened. 
We could have switched places, Bush commented, each getting a half night on the bed. But he deferred to me. That was a very courteous thing, very thoughtful, and that meant a great deal to me. Empathy. <laughs> Some have described empathy as your pain in my heart. A snapshot. Or boys and girls, what about this snapshot? I just read it this past week. The story of Johnny, third grade, fourth grade, somewhere along in there. Johnny, who was in class that day and who needed to get permission to go to the restroom, couldn't get it in time. And he peed his pants. He tried to cover it with a notebook, school book, thinking this is social suicide when the other kids notice. He was filled with terror. And then there came the teacher, going to have him stand and present something to the class. He was thinking, I can't do this. And it was just then that Susie, Susie sat right behind Johnny. Teacher had asked her to clean the goldfish bowl. She had gotten another bowl, filled it with clean water, and was making her way there. When just before the teacher got to Johnny's desk, Susie got there, tripped, and splashed that entire container of water all over Johnny. Now all the other kids were laughing at Susie, mocking Susie. She's such a klutz. A while later, as they waited to get onto the school bus to go home, Johnny said to Susie, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And Susie said, I once peed my pants. Huh. Kids, empathy, the golden rule changing their world. You suppose that idea is powerful enough to change the world? I read just a week ago that the movie studio Pixar that makes so many movies that have delighted so many hundreds of millions, Taurus Toy Story and Finding Nemo and Up and Cars and all the other animated movies they make, that they value one quote that they attribute to Mr. Rogers. And here's the quote. There is nobody you can't learn to love once you've heard their story. Empathy. What about it? Can it change the world? What do you suppose, divorced father of two? You still bear that almost rage at your ex. Suppose you stood in her shoes for a while and lived out the golden rule. What would happen? 
What about you, CEO? As you look at the frustrating one or two employees you have and, and want to, well, what about if you heard their story? What about you, employee, filled with anger at your superior? What if you practiced empathy? What about you, roommate, who's tired of seeing her wear your clothes without permission? Empathy? Golden rule? What about leaders of states and governments and countries? What do you suppose would happen if on this planet we did to others what we would wish them to do to us? What would happen if we had empathy? I think we've got our idea. And I suppose that if lived out one person at a time, Jesus' idea would change the world.